Welcome to the Catalyst Podcast. This episode, entitled Who? What? The Hell? was given on January 20th, 2019 by Bethany Shea in the series From the Ashes. All right, turn with me to John 3.16. <laughs> and if you have it memorized, you can just listen if you want uh, so we've been in the series on John 3.16 since the beginning of last semester, since September. This is the last Sunday, probably, probably, we don't know. <laughs> this is the last Sunday that we're doing Shall Not Perish. We've been looking at what perishing looks like, what hell is, what it means to, what perishing, it just, it's really intense. So listen to the podcast if you missed any of those, they're on our website. Uh, and next week, Tamara is going to be teaching here, so that'll be really exciting. And then the next week after that, which is February 3rd, I will be wrapping up the series with Shall Have Eternal Life, and we'll look at what that looks like. And then we'll go into our next series, which is still to be determined. Yes. Okay, uh, so this idea that for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Oftentimes when we think of perishing, we think of where we will go after we die, heaven or hell. And what we have been looking at the last few weeks is how it's not so much heaven and hell in the Bible. In fact, heaven and hell are never together in God's word. It's always heaven and earth. Earth is the counterpart to heaven. And so we've been looking at what it looks like in the Bible when Jesus, when God speaks about the heavens and the earth, God speaks about a renewal that will happen, that because of sin and death, there's a fracture that happened between heaven and earth. And God is always renewing all things to bring that new heaven and new earth to come back together in the space of perfect harmony and completion at the end of it all. Now, when we look at the end of things, it's called eschatology. Uh, it's the way that we understand the end of things or the last things on earth and heaven will shape the way that we live out our lives here on earth. Our eschatology or our belief in the end will shape and determine our ethic on how we live today while we have breath in our bodies. If we believe that it's all going to burn anyway, that we live that, that some people are outside of God's saving grace, or that the world is going to hell in a handbasket, we will live for ourselves, we will live for our family, and maybe possibly for our church or our community. But that's it. If we believe God's always redeeming and renewing everything and we are invited into being a part of God's renewal work and renewal process, we will live in a different way. So what you believe about the future will determine how you live in the present. And that's why it's so important that we sit in texts like this and understand what God is doing in the world and what God is calling us to do as his people in the world. Today's passage will be from Matthew chapter 10. You're welcome to turn there. It will be like drinking from a fire hose today. It's a lot that we're going to get into. So if it feels overwhelming, if like me, so okay, you guys, the way that I learn, I learn something and then it's out of my brain within seconds. I, I cannot hold, I cannot retain information. I'm really bad at that. 
If you're able to listen to a lecture or listen to somebody talk or listen to other people and you're able to retain it, hallelujah. That's, that's a beautiful gift that God has given you. If you're like me, you might want to take some notes down or you might, maybe, maybe while I'm talking, the Holy Spirit has like a really specific word for you. And if that word is there, just allow that to like ruminate. If you need just to let go of whatever else I'm saying to, so you can keep up with that word, all, all power to you. This is, um, or you just take notes and come back to later or listen to the podcast again if, if there's too much. All right. Last thing, the passage that we look at today, we will look at further in our Bible study on Thursday. So we're not going to get to everything. Maybe some of the things I tell you today are things that you will not agree with. And that's why we do Bible study. That's why we learn from each other. That's why we challenge each other's ways of thinking. All right? Cool? Okay. Matthew 10. Oh, I'm not there. Okay, here we go. Matthew 10, we'll read verses 26 to 42, but I'm going to camp out for a while in verse 28. Actually, let's start in verse 24. Did I say 24? No. 24. The student is not above the teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for students to be like their teachers and servants like their masters. If the head of the house has been called Beelzebub, Beelzebub, how much more the members of his household. So do not be afraid of them, for there is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will, be not, that will not be made known. What I tell you in the dark, speak in the daylight. What is whispered in your ear, proclaim from the roofs. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside your father's care. And even the very hairs on your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. Whoever acknowledges me before others, I will also acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before others, I will disown before my Father in heaven. Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. Anyone who welcomes you welcomes me, and anyone who welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. Whoever welcomes a prophet as a prophet will receive a prophet's reward, and whoever welcomes a righteous person as a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And if anyone gives even a cup of cold water to one of these little ones who is my disciple, Truly, I tell you, that person will certainly not lose their reward. Easy, easy stuff, right? All right. So I want to camp out in verse 28 for a while. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. 
Rather be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. (laughs) Okay. The word for hell here is one that we've talked about before. It is the word Gehenna, which Jesus used to give people a picture or a metaphor of what hell might look like. And Gehenna was this always burning trash heap outside of the gates of Jerusalem. It was called the Valley of Hinnom. And in the Valley of Hinnom, back in the day before this was ever written, uh, the Canaanites kind of lived in that area and they would sacrifice their children, they would sacrifice humans to the god of Moloch, their Canaanite god. So this area that was a burning trash heap was considered a cursed land It was therefore useless for anything beyond being used for a landfill. And for Jesus to use this word, Gehenna, to describe what God could do would have caused a very visceral reaction to his disciples who were listening. In the Old Testament, hell isn't really mentioned at all uh, in the Hebrew. There's a handful of references to death and to the grave, Uh, especially in the Psalms. If you read the Psalms, there's a lot of things about death and the grave. The way the Hebrew people understood death and life was not some sort of fixed reality. It was a way of being. So one could either choose life or they could choose death in their current state of being. And in the New Testament, what you see is that hell is mentioned around 12 times. Uh, And it's basically just by Jesus. Once it's by John in another passage. But one of those times is the verse that we just read. And that verse is also in a parallel gospel of of Luke. It's the same kind of wording that that Jesus uses for hell. So it's not very often that Jesus uses that word for hell. Throughout the life that Jesus lived... Throughout the words that that we have of Jesus, what we see is that Jesus is so much more interested in God's kingdom of heaven that he says is already present, already here, than he was about hell and our often misguided understandings of it. And most often when Jesus spoke about hell, he used this language to describe a form of consequence towards the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who believed that they were on God's good side simply because of their birthright, because of their race, because of their knowledge and obedience of God's law. They believed that they were always in God's good standing because of who they were born into. And Jesus uses this really strong language of hell most often against religious hypocrisy. Hypocrisy was a word that was used back then to describe an actor. So uh, as somebody who was considered a hypocrite was somebody who was an actor. It was, a, it was somebody who wore a mask. So back then, the, the people who were acting would have, uh, they would go into different plays and they would wear a mask that looked like a happy face or they'd wear a mask that was more of a sad face and they would change the mask in and out. The mask was not deterring, determining who the person was who was wearing the mask. They could be having the worst day of their life while still wearing a happy mask. So a hypocrite was somebody who never showed who they actually were on the inside. It was a way to mask their emotions. Turn with me to Matthew 23.1. You're welcome to keep your finger in 10 because we'll be back there in a little bit. It's 
So Matthew 23, verse 1. We're going to go throughout the chapter of 23, kind of like picking pieces out. You're welcome to write it down and go back there later if you want. It's, it's, not, a, it's not a fun chapter. <laughs> so it says, Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat, Jesus said. So you must be careful to do everything they tell you, but do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. Verse 13, Jesus says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. Jump down to 23. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin. But you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides. You strain out the gnat, but swallow a camel. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisees, first clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside will also be clean. Verse 30. And you say, if we had lived in the days of our ancestors, we would have not taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Verse 33, you snakes, you brood of vipers, how will you escape being condemned to hell? Verse 37, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Another super easy teaching. (laughs) Jesus uses this very strong language of religious hypocrisy against those teachers of the law. Against the teachers of the law who, who said that they wouldn't do the same things to the teachers of the, that the teachers of the, law, of the law did before them. They looked at the past in that verse in that verse 30. It says, "If we had lived in the days of our ancestors, we have not have taken part with them in the shedding of blood of the prophets." They were like, "Oh, we are so much better than they were then. We would have never done what they had done then." Yet we do the same things today. We oftentimes look to the past and we think, oh, we would have never taken part in what had happened back then. We are so much better than we were back then. And yet Jesus is so about using the strong language for those who are present there. And I believe that it has to do with us today as well. Because we have hypocritical teachers and we have celebrity pastors all around us who ask widows and who ask the dissolving middle class to give huge amounts of their paychecks and their fixed income to give towards God's service, only to find that they've bought themselves a new Rolls Royce. And our trusted and beloved priests have been molesting children under his care. 
Jesus uses this strong language of hell for religious hypocritical pastors because when it comes to these kinds of sin from these religious leaders who are meant to point people to God's kingdom, Jesus doesn't hold back. But Jesus also uses strong language for the Pharisees, who I would say the Pharisees are sometimes the good church people of today. The good church people who always attend church but would never be seen in a soup kitchen. Who who give the required amount of their tithes and offerings in the offering plate, but their 401k is invested in the prison industrial complex. Those who wear the right kind of clothes and fit the right kind of mold and look the right kind of part to step foot in that in that big mega church sort of a space, but yet they obsessively shop on Amazon and they're living in crazy amounts of debt. Those who march in right for life and anti-abortion parades yet turn their noses up to the mother who is in line with her WIC checks holding up the line at the grocery store because why would she take so long? or who stands in opposition to the indigenous elder whose land we occupy while marching for the rights of the unborn. Religious hypocrisy is all around us and at times lives within us. And Jesus uses such strong language of hell because it is better to lose a hand or lose an eye than to perpetuate big oil. It is better to have your tongue ripped out of your mouth than to say or do something that perpetuates a young girl to keep cutting herself. It is better to have a heavy stone tied around your neck and thrown into the sea than to perpetuate systems that exploit the vulnerable and the marginalized. Jesus uses strong language of burning garbage heaps where human sacrifices were once held because God hates Sin and what sin has done within you and what sin has done around us. Sin keeps people enslaved. It breaks up families. It causes people to hate. It makes young girls despise the way they look. It makes young men see women as objects. It hurts individuals and families and society and the kingdom of God. It echoes throughout history. It shows us the darkest sides of ourselves. Sin separates us from God even while we declare Christ as Lord. And it is a constant struggle for so many of us. And it needs to be named It needs to be named so we can fight against its bondage and entanglement in our lives. We have to name it so God can set us free through the grace of God because God hates sin. Now, when I was growing up, and for many of us who who were growing up, we grew up with this understanding that if God hates sin and that we are sinners, then God must hate us. And God must hate us so much that God can only love us by looking at us through Jesus Christ. But God doesn't hate you. God hates sin. Sin is like like a cancer. It's a distortion or a mutilation of something that's actually good. Cancer takes over good and healthy cells. It, it, It often kills and destroys the human that it's inhabiting. 
if your child has cancer and lies sick in a hospital bed and while this cancer spreads throughout her body, does your hatred for the cancer, for what is killing your child, cause you to hate your child? Absolutely not. You are so devastated and so heartbroken to see your little girl suffer in this way. You would do anything to save her. You would pray day after day that God would take the cancer from your little girl's body and just place it on yourself because you would rather bear the weight of that cancer than see your child suffer for even a day longer. And I believe that this is how our Father in Heaven sees us, has responded to the sin in this world. Sin is like a cancer that keeps us entangled towards destructive patterns of living, destructive towards ourselves, destructive toward, towards the soil and the earth that stands below our feet, destructive towards our relationship with God and our relationship to other people. And God looked at the sin of this world that was killing people and took that sin upon God's self. And God ripped the cancer from us because God loves us. So to live like the cancer is still eating away at your body, to live like sin still rules, is to ignore the grace of God and not to trust in what God did on the cross was enough. Paul writes in Philippians 3 that we are to live up to what we have already attained. Where have you seen this in your lives? Where have you seen sin like cancer in yourself or in in society around you? Or have you experienced this sort of destruction in yourself or in in the world around you? Anybody want to share anything that they've experienced or seen? Big or small? I think most of us could name it. So I want you just to be be able to think about those things. Acknowledge it. The, The passage that we read in Matthew 10, it says that we're supposed to take what has been hidden in the darkness and bring it to light. I think sometimes there's a lot that's hidden in the darkness that we need to bring to the light. When Jesus spoke about hell, it wasn't so much about a literal location as it was about a way of living and being in the world today that would determine how you would respond with what's to come. Hell with weeping and gnashing of teeth, that's what Jesus uses a lot, especially in the Gospel of Matthew, it's like weeping and gnashing of teeth. It it was this experience that came from the religious hypocrites who would discover that their goodness wasn't enough for God's kingdom. That good behavior and right living and perfect sacrificial ways wasn't what God required. God has always been looking for those who are humbly willing to draw near, to lay down their agenda for God's purposes and for God's glory. 
to willingly lay down our fame or our quest for power or our quest for authority for God's fame and God's glory and God's authority to be seen. And God has always been looking for humble partners or disciples to walk with God in every area of our lives. That first verse of Matthew 10 that we read about fearing God who can destroy the body and soul and hell It takes place in a certain context and in a certain time with a certain kind of people. So I want to kind of sit in this text for a minute, the one that we just read. So turn with me to Matthew 10 for a moment again. And I'm not going to read through it again, but I want you to just sit in it, like read through it again on your own, just for a minute or so. See what stands out to you. Matthew 10, we read verses 24 to 42. Just go through it for a a minute, and then I'll ask what's kind of standing out or encouraging or confusing. So what's, uh, what's confusing or encouraging or standing out to you in this text? Yeah, Karen. Confusing is uh, anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Yeah. I can't imagine loving my kids less. Yeah, yeah. And yet loving someone more challenges. Yeah, totally. What else? Yeah, Amanda. So, he talks about reward, you know, like, you won't lose this reward about that reward, but what's the opposite of losing the, you know, like, so gaining a reward and losing a reward if you don't gain the reward? Yeah. And what are you left with? Right. Yeah. Good. Can't lose what you don't already have. Can't lose what you don't already have. What else? He repeats over and over again, so he's not afraid. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I'm not going to answer your questions. <laughs> Sorry, uh, come to Bible study on Thursday and maybe we could figure it out there. Um, that's, that's not the point of this. The point is to be able to sit in this text and allow it to be confusing and frustrating. I think that's part of our walk with Jesus is to be able to be a little confused and frustrated sometimes because when we're confused and frustrated, we, we dig deeper. 
we don't just allow the answers to get us through. We dig deeper into, into this relationship that we have with Jesus. But I will talk a little bit about what Danielle said. So you're so lucky. Because <laughs> uh, that's what stood out to me, too, was um, that space of fear. And I, this is just what Jesus gave me for us today. And obviously, Jesus may give something totally different for you. But that, that concept of fear and how fear causes us not to act. The Greek for fear here is, or, or do not be afraid, is phobeo, uh, and it's used in so many different ways. If you look at a word in the Bible, it's good to look at where else that word is used and how often that word is used. And that word phobeo, uh, it, it says to phobeo God means to come before God with such reverence and awe, almost like a startling for the experience that you have with God, like you're startled by his presence, like, oh, not afraid just startled. Uh, the angels declared to the shepherds on the hill when Jesus was born, they, they said, they said, do not be phobeo, do not be afraid. Um, when Jesus healed and forgave that paralyzed man, remember that story where like the, all these friends gather around this guy who's been paralyzed his whole life and they're like, oh, Jesus is over here and they can't get through the crowds. There's so many people gathered around Jesus in this, in this house that they go on to the up, they, they go up, up to the top of this roof start digging the roof out and putting their paralyzed friend down this roof into the middle where Jesus was with this crowd. And Jesus doesn't heal him. He says, your sins are forgiven because of the faith that your friends had for you, which is so confusing in that sense anyway, which I love so much. But then he, then he heals him. And so the crowds there, the, the, the word that is used for the crowd's response to what Jesus had done with the forgiving and the healing is that they were amazed, they marveled, they phobeo. They weren't afraid, they marveled. And when Jesus speaks of the kind of fear that paralyzes someone to not truly act or live their life for God's glory, he calls it phobeo. Jesus, in before this passage, if you want to look in chapter 10, all the way from verse 1 to where we got to verse 24, actually to the very end of the passage. The whole thing was about Jesus preparing his disciples to be sent out throughout Israel to proclaim the gospel that God's kingdom was arriving and he could tell that they were afraid of doing this. He could tell that they were apprehensive of what this could look like. They were afraid of what Jesus was calling them to do because they were afraid of how their fellow Jews would respond. For them to go about into the countryside as young men who are barely understanding what it means to follow Jesus in their own lives, barely understanding what it means to have Jesus as the Savior of the world, the Messiah, to have to go from home to home in Hebrew territory in Israel and say, hey, I know who the Messiah is and God's kingdom is already arriving, is frightening beyond all frightening. And so Jesus is saying, this is where you're going to go, and this is how it's going to be, and it's okay to be afraid. You don't have to be afraid. Fear is often the driving force in our lives that makes us not respond to the needs around us. There's that parable that Jesus teaches about 
this wealthy landowner, and he goes up to his, his three different servants, and in the parable, he gives the servants different sums of money. To one servant, he gives like 10 bags of gold or something. The next one is like five bags, and the last one is a bag of gold. And he wants to see how they do with the investment that he's given them to invest in. And he leaves town, and he's like, when I return, I want to see what you've done with what I've given you. And it follows the other two when they do good things with their investment, and it follows the third, and it says that the third decides to take his money and bury it in a field because he was so afraid. He was so afraid to do anything with it. And this level of fear of the future of what his boss might think when he arrives, or the future of whatever might look like, the future of what's to come, heaven or hell, or whatever sort of thing is happening tomorrow or the next day or whenever, that fear of his of what's to come made him waste his time and talents. It froze him inside. He froze from fear. And I don't know about you, but that is a, that is a real-life experience for me in so many ways, where I feel... Sometimes I feel paralyzed from fear. Most of you know that Jason, my husband, has severe anxiety disorder, and sometimes it comes up and it freezes him with fear. And Jesus is saying, this is not real life. There is more because I am with you even in the midst of your fear. A bigger fear that I think affects so many of us, not so much of the fear of the future, is the fear of offending other people. (laughs) We are so afraid of rocking the boat or taking a stand against what we know is wrong because someone might get offended and think of us differently. Those disciples who were sent out into the towns and villages of, of Israel were afraid of offending their fellow Jewish people by declaring the gospel was at hand. And so fear causes us to remain silent in the midst of things that we know is wrong. Tomorrow is Martin Luther King Jr. Day, you guys. And and, and we can look easily back to the time when, when before he was killed, before he was murdered, and we can look back then and believe that we would have stood up for people of color if we were there then. Just like the Pharisees who said, well, I wouldn't put those prophets to death. We could look at that. We would have said that we would have joined in as allies and we would have marched with Selma and we would have used our bodies to protect those whose bodies have forever been seen as less than than in our society. But like the Pharisees and like the teachers of the law who swear that they would never put God's prophets to death if they were there then, we too are often white moderates who are afraid to speak God's truth to power. So afraid of losing our friends. So afraid of seeing what would actually happen if we stood with those on the other side of the wall or the other side of the debates. Fear is a driving force that keeps hell alive for so many other people. And oftentimes it's shrouded in the language of peace. Now peace is good. Peace is right. Jesus is called the Prince of Peace. But sometimes fear needs to be cut out of you. In this verse, what does it say here? In verse um, 
34, chapter 10, verse 34, Jesus says, do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. What? What? The Prince of Peace comes to bring a sword? I thought Jesus was nonviolent. He was. (laughs) To bring a sword, if we're always striving to keep the peace, to keep silent, to bury our treasure so nothing bad will happen to it, hell keeps winning here on earth. And you guys, this is this is hard for me because I love peace. I hate rocking the boat. I hate disturbing things that are going on. I wish I could just bury it all and move past. And that is a privilege that I am afforded in many, many ways. But that is not what Jesus is calling us to do with our lives. Sometimes the padding of peace or the ways we protect ourselves needs to be sliced away by the sword of truth. It needs to be cut off. It needs to be pruned out of us so we can be disciples who daily take up our cross and follow Jesus. And maybe losing our life for the sake of Christ is where life actually exists. Perhaps when Paul said that we've been crucified with Christ and our old selves no longer live, the fear of hell and death, the fear of what others may think, died with him on that cross. And Jesus said that the gospel is offensive. And Jesus said the gospel is divisive. It will turn mother against child. It will turn mother-in-law against daughter-in-law. It will turn people against each other, which is so hard for me because I love peace so much. So we have to ask ourselves, what has to be cut away? What is it that Jesus is asking to be removed from the darkness and brought into the light in our lives? says in verse 26, So do not be afraid of them, for there is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. What is hidden in your life that needs to be exposed? Because those hidden spaces, when we keep those in our lives, they become, we become entangled to it. It can become something that keeps us from actually living out the gospel. It can become a sort of blackmail on our own lives. Where has hypocrisy lived within us? Jesus says the truth will set you free. (laughs) So what needs to be brought to light and cut away? Jesus says that when you live for the gospel, when you are living for God's kingdom instead of the empire or instead of the ways of this world, you will lose family and friends. But there is nothing to fear Because you're never alone, Jesus says. There is nothing to fear because as we read, God knows the number of hairs that are on your head, that God is with you in all things, that 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 kind of knowing of us, that kind of love that comes from Jesus simply does away with fear. And when you begin to live out the good news of God's love for all people, for all people, when you begin to cut that fear out of your lives, when you find yourself losing those you once admired or, 
or, or losing the people in your life that you once held on a pedestal because you're willing to actually speak truth to power, it will probably hurt. It will hurt you. It'll cause pain. There might be wounds and there might be scars from cutting out fear and from losing people and carrying your cross. But in the death of your old self and the resurrection of your new life, those wounds and scars that you might bear will connect you even deeper to the wounds and scars of Christ that he still bears. Those wounds that come about from you living out the gospel and all things for the sake of God's glory in this world are the ones that connect us even deeper to the wounds and the scars that Christ still bears. So may we never stop proclaiming the good news of God's love and grace by showing how God's kingdom has come. And may we reveal how perfect love casts out fear in our own lives and the lives and the world around us. Jesus, I know that there's so much more to this passage and there's things that I got wrong. And so I pray that and trust that you will make that right. God, I thank you for what you are calling us into. I thank you that you believe that we are capable of living out your kingdom and your gospel. I thank you that this good news is not something that we get to hold on to for ourselves, but that you have shown us ways that we get to share that with others. That we do not need to be afraid of your kingdom, of your gospel, of what other people will think. But in it, we find great healing and great rest. May we be the kind of church and the kind of community that feels safe to belong, but not complacent to the pain of the world. We pray these things for your glory, for your honor, and for your kingdom, Jesus, so that none shall perish. In your name we pray these things. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast. For more information about ways that you can be involved with Catalyst, please visit our website at provokechange.org. Until next time, continue loving God, loving our neighbors, and loving each other.